I don't know if you guys are big movie fans, but The Wizard of Oz is one of the first movies in English I saw after I arrived here in the States. And it's been a while since I watched that. And one time I was trying to recall the details of the film. I do remember that Dorothy and Toto were trying to get back home, and that's Kansas. The Wicked Witch of the West was the enemy. But then after that, I started getting others mixed up. Like, was it the Scarecrow that needed a heart, or was it the Tin Man? I confirmed later that Scarecrow wanted a brain and the Tin Man a heart. hope I looked that up correctly. But then when it comes to another side character, I remember the details correctly. The lion, he needed to recover his courage. That longing, along with Dorothy's desire to return home, made most sense to me. I mean, it's strange that the king of the jungle would be going around scared. Lions are supposed to be brave and fearless. The cowardly lion is a paradox, a contradiction, a fictional character. Perhaps that's why he was memorable to me. And now that I think about it, it seems like he's a relatable character. We don't often lose our heart or misplace our brain unless you're a first-time parent. But as followers in a hostile world, we do lose courage. I wonder if that describes you. Because it certainly describes me at times. While I was thinking about all this, my eyes fixated on a verse, Proverbs 28.1. And today I want to preach from this one verse. And this is somewhat unusual for me. I usually go through a book of the Bible or at least a big chunk of a book. I just finished First Samuel and plan to go through a New Testament book and then return to the Old Testament. I could have begun a series today. But I thought it'd be good to reflect and respond to some of the wonderful truths we've received recently. In March, we began the Way of the Master evangelism training on Sunday evenings. We learned about how to address the conscience as we take the good news to the lost. In April, we had guest speakers deliver grand messages from Isaiah 54 and 1 Corinthians 15. Two weeks ago, we learned that we must expect great things from God, and attempt great things for God. Last week, we learned that now Christ is risen from the dead, and that makes all the difference in the world. So as we open up the word today, we think about how we can respond as individuals and as a congregation. What will it mean for us to enlarge the place of our tent? Expand to the right and to the left. What will it take for you and me to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Now, I'm going to get to Proverbs 28.1 in a minute. I'll read it. But before I do, I'll give a quick introduction to Proverbs. By no means is this comprehensive. Just a quick introduction. The book of Proverbs is a collection of 
wisdom sayings that stretches from 900s to around 700 BC. We have King Solomon, who's responsible for most of it. I tend to agree with Sid Buzzell that Solomon wrote Song of Songs early in his life, Proverbs middle, and Ecclesiastes late. Solomon also took and included material available for him, so-called things that belong to the wise. He talks about it in chapter 24, verse 23. And then there's Hezekiah, who copied and compiled them later. The last few chapters contain contributions from Agur and King Lemuel, probably Arabian God-bearers. And then there's that famous passage about the virtuous wife at the end. Now, there are similarities between Proverbs and wisdom literature of other cultures. But what sets Proverbs apart is this insistence that a proper relationship with God is foundational to wise living. Proper relationship with God is foundational to wise living. Godliness and wisdom are linked, even synonymous. On the dark flip side, so are ungodliness and foolishness. Being wise, biblically speaking, is not really about having a high IQ, being a straight-A student, or getting into a top-tier university. Being wise is, first of all, about revering God. So Solomon sets the tone in chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This connection between godliness and wisdom is a theme that continues in today's passage. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the structure of this verse before I read it. And Proverbs is considered one of the poetical books of the Old Testament contains a lot of poetry, and quite often in Hebrew poetry, you'll find two lines in parallel in one verse. And to be more specific, in this chapter and next, in chapter 28 and 29, you'll find antithetical statements. And these statements are composed of two lines of contrast connected by the conjunction, but. There's a good number of them in chapter 28 of Proverbs, Out of its 28 verses, by one count, there are 18 antithetical statements. Today's sermon passage is the first of them. So finally, we can read Proverbs 28.1, if you want to follow along. It's in page 461 of the Pew Bible. One verse, Proverbs 28.1, page 461 of your Pew Bible. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. We're dealing with a small verse, seven words in the original language, so maybe you can try to memorize it this upcoming week. Hide it in your heart, and perhaps you'll develop a heart for the lost. I pray it stirs up in you a godly courage. As for the outline, we can see the two parts of the verse separated by a comma. 
So I'll say that Proverbs 28.1a is about the guilt-ridden state of the lost. The guilt-ridden state of the lost, 28.1a. And then Proverbs 28.1b is about the courageous faith of the saved. 1b is about the courageous faith of the saved. First, let's talk about the guilt-ridden state of the lost. The lost, that is those without Christ, are designated as wicked in today's passage. They stand in contrast to the righteous, and this contrast is seen all throughout the Bible. In Genesis, Abraham believed God, the judge of all earth, would do right and spare the righteous who live among the wicked. Later we see in the law of Moses, the local judges are tasked to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. In this way, human authorities must be instruments of divine justice. But later the prophets lamented how their people have failed in this respect. Worldly systems of justice fail. The wicked prospers and devours the righteous. And often both suffer in the same way. But there is a day coming when the Lord will reveal a clear difference between the righteous and the wicked. Now you may say to me, why are there only two choices? Why such polar opposites? This is something I often hear talking with unbelievers. Does it have to be so black and white between the righteous and the wicked? Isn't there a lot of gray and gradations of good and evil? I'm not so bad myself if you line me up with rapists and serial killers. That all sounds nice to our ears if we use our fallible human standards of morality. You always have someone to step over and look down on. But if we use the infallible divine standards of morality, we all fall short. Jesus demands this from us. You shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. James says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Paul warned that curses everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. Far from it. And here's how the Bible summarizes our condition in Romans 3, 10 to 18. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift of shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If no one is righteous, then we are all wicked. There are reminders in the Bible, and even inside of us, that we're guilty. And that's called a conscience. 
And, and as much as you try to drown your conscience, as much as we try to forget, we know deep in our hearts that we've done something wrong. That awareness of sin haunts and follows us wherever we go. And then we are scared that someone will catch us and administer justice, reveal all the sins that we've hidden. That's why the wicked flee when no one pursues. They have a troubled conscience. Like Jonah, they try to flee from the presence of the Lord. And I'm sure all of us had struggles with our conscience before. When I was little, I recall receiving money from my uncle and my grandmother on separate occasions. They gave clear instructions to either go to the store to run an errand, put it in the church offering plate, or buy a school textbook. Each time I chose to use the money to purchase toys or waste it on an arcade game, Every time I ended up confessing because I knew what I did was wrong and how was I going to run away anyway. And boy, did I get a good whooping. I don't know if I can say that these days, but yes, I got spanked. Even before I had picked up the Bible, I had this prick of conscience. I understood then the guilt-ridden state of the lost. I understand now why the wicked flee when no one pursues. John Piper points to the earliest example of this condition. It's when Adam and Eve hid themselves from God in the garden in Genesis 3.8. The conscience is always there reminding us of our sin. Now, I don't have time to go into a go deep into a full study of conscience right now. But I'll recommend some good resources. It's, one is called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ by Andy, Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crawley. And then maybe a lesser, um, less modern book. It's a, um, I'm going to use an illustration from John Bunyan in his book called The Holy War. And it's not as popular as Pilgrim's Progress, but it depicts, depicts conscience in a helpful way, in allegory. So in it, Bunyan narrates that Mr. Conscience right, is the official city clerk of a town called Mansoul. Get it? The rightful ruler of the city is Emmanuel, but the devil invades and he corrupts all. But the enemy has his limits. Though he can defile Mr. Conscience, he cannot get rid of him. And as the people submit to the devil and turn to wickedness, Mr. Conscience cannot stay silent. He frightens them with his fits of outrage. Bunyan writes, quote, His words sounded to the people like great claps of thunder. His voice was as terrifying as the noise of the soldiers and shouts of the captains. Satan, unable to stifle him, tries to convince the citizens that he's insane, an old raving lunatic. 
He should not be taken seriously. And that gives us the glimpse, a glimpse of the guilt-ridden state of the lost. The conscience, though wounded and seared, still functions as a witness, accusing us of our law-breaking. It cries out in protest against the lusts of our eyes, hatred of our hearts, and slander of our mouths. But what do we do with these shrieks of conscience? The best thing we can do for the lost soul is to preach the gospel. We start by agreeing with their conscience that they're sinners. We don't shy away from the high standards of scripture, water it down. We use the law to give them the knowledge of sin and expose the abundance of sin in their lives. This is what the way of the master training teaches. By opening up the Bible and turning to God's moral standards, and demands we're basically putting on a projector screen our state of condemnation. And that picture shows us racked and infested with the spiritual terminal cancer of sin and guilt. As soul physicians, we have to convince the lost that they are indeed lost. They have to admit they're wicked before we talk about being righteous. But then once that happens, like any good doctor, we administer the cure. If they understand the bad news, we can freely speak of the good news. God the Father sent his son, Jesus, to be human like us. But unlike us, he never never violated God's laws. And he never violated his own conscience. Yet amazingly, he willingly went to the cross and died in our place. He became our substitute, taking on himself the penalty of our sins, God's wrath of hell. Then he defeated death, rose from the grave on the third day, and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. God has done all that's necessary to address the problem of our sin and conscience. Our response is to repent, turn from our sin, and turn to Christ for eternal salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It can be received only by grace. And there are great blessings through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Our troubled hearts can be sprinkled and our conscience cleansed by the blood of Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 9 and 10. And we sang about this earlier. Go back to your bulletin. Go back to page 6. Join all the glorious names. And look at verse 3. Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside His powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. That's a wonderful truth that we sang earlier. Though the accuser within and the accuser of the brethren cries out, guilty, judgment, the blood of Jesus speaks better things and pleads mercy forgiven. 
Now, even though we are perfectly forgiven as Christians and saints, that doesn't mean that we're all all of a sudden perfect. We're a work in progress in sanctification, and we still mess up. That's why every week we acknowledge that we mess up. We confess our faults before God corporately here, and I hope you do so individually at home too. Maybe you messed up bad this week, or even this morning. But there is assurance that our salvation is not dependent on our performance. Then, now, or ever. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And because Jesus is righteous by faith in him, we are righteous. And being righteous by faith is not only about going to heaven someday, it's about living with your new identity on earth. And that leads to the second half of Proverbs 28.1. The righteous are bold as a lion. Now, for you brothers and sisters in Christ, I know you've been patiently waiting to get to this part. But let me begin this point like the way I began the first point, making a proper distinction between the wicked and the righteous. When you read that the righteous are bold as a lion, you may say to me, wait, I've seen plenty of people out there not living for God, but they're pretty bold, brazen, openly rebellious, taking foolish risks with their lives. It seems like courage is found in both the righteous and the wicked. Now, if we look only on the surface, that's true. There's courage there. But if we dig deeper, we'll see that the root of that courage is quite different. Some trees look similar in early stages, but obviously different later as leaves and fruits emerge kind of like the wheat and the tares. It's the same way with the courage of the wicked and the courage of the righteous. But don't take my word for it. Let's look at some other verses while staying in the same book of Proverbs. And I'll go back to, first of all, chapter 11, Proverbs 11, verse 28. The Proverbs 11, 28 says, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. The one and the same verb is behind trust here and are bold in chapter 28 verse 1. One's courage is very much dependent on his foundation. The righteous do not trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. They enjoy an abundant life. Their life does not consist in the abundance of the things they possess. Moving forward to Proverbs 14, verse 16. 14, 16. A wise man fears and departs from evil. 
but a fool rages and is self-confident. That word self-confident is the same word with our bold in chapter 28, verse 1. The righteous are not bold when it comes to the evil. They fear God and they fear sinning and offending God. But fools, in contrast, passionately pursues wickedness. And who do they trust? They trust in themselves. And back to chapter 28. But look later in verses 25 and 26. 28, verses 25 to 26. He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. In consecutive verses, we see the word trust in each, but with two very different direct objects. You either trust in God or you trust in your own heart. The righteous lean on the Lord God, abounding in goodness and truth. The wicked lean on their own hearts, deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. To bring it all together, we gather that the righteous are bold because they trust in the Lord and they depart from evil. They do not trust in themselves or the things of the world. Saints walk by faith without confidence in the flesh. We can be bold as a lion because we trust in Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now let's spend some time in application. How shall we who are righteous be bold as a lion? I'll just offer four answers. I'm sure you can think of more. First, Be bold in speaking the gospel. And I don't mean being bold in our classrooms or at the pulpit. I'm saying we need to be bold out there. Now, to my shame, I used to think that including the gospel presentation in my sermons every week, by doing that, I could check off, done, and say, I share the gospel regularly. I don't think that's what Paul meant when he told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Someone told me once, preaching the gospel on Sundays is like fishing in an aquarium. So fellow pastors and evangelists have challenged me to talk with those outside of the church, acquaintances, and even strangers about the gospel. Now you may say to me, Sung, I'm shy. I'm an introvert. I'm not the bold type. I hear you. I'm not either. Um, And that's where prayer comes in. Here's the second application. Pray for boldness in speaking the gospel. And in fact, boldness in every area of your life, in obedience, in living for the Lord. And this kind of prayer is completely biblical. What did the early church do? Jerusalem church when faced with the command to stop evangelizing. Well, they didn't say, oh, shucks, we'll stop. Let's not cause any trouble here. They prayed in Acts 4, 29. 
Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. The room shook and they shook the world. Now also consider Paul, the great missionary and apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote the Ephesians about supplication for all the saints. But then he asked that they pray specifically for him. That utterance may be given to him that he may open his mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. He desired to be an ambassador for the gospel even in chains. That in it he may speak boldly as he ought to speak. It's comforting to know that even as such a great man of God like Paul asked for prayer so that he be bold in his witness. When we're tempted to retreat, let's pray. I hope we can say as David says in Psalm 138 verse 3. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Thirdly, we need to combine boldness with truth and love. When it comes to truth, our confidence must be in the scriptures. So make sure you read it regularly. And believe that the word breathed out by God will not return to him void. Believe that it's profitable for reproof and correction. Also, our passion for truth goes in hand, goes hand in hand with love. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Better is open rebuke than love does conceal. So with courage, truth, and love, with the joy of salvation and willing spirit, with patience and humility, we must teach transgressors the ways of the Lord. Fourth and finally, we need to be bold and go. These days, going has never been easier. I can hop on an airplane and go from here to Seoul in about 14 hours. Can you imagine if Paul had our modern transportation? So the ability and technology are there for the taking. Often it's our cowardice that prevents us from going from closing the gap from point A to point B. I cannot force you to go. I can only remind you the righteous are bold as a lion. Last time I checked, apex predators go wherever they want. If the Israelites were a lion-like people, rising, lifting itself, and devouring as it pleases, as it says in Numbers, If the Gadites had faces like faces of lions, as we see in 1 Chronicles 12, how much more should we, empowered by the word and the spirit, be strong and courageous as a New Testament church? Now, it may seem difficult to feel like a lion these days. The world seems so bewildering and big, Filled with dead ends, no easy yellow brick road to follow. But we've been commissioned by our Savior 
there's this assurance that all authority has been given to him who sits at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. We have the great promise that Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, will be with us always, even to the end of the age. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that somebody in our lives long ago or recently was brave enough to open their mouths and open their hearts to share the gospel with us. When we look at ourselves back then, maybe we were like the wicked. We're fleeing when no one pursues. Maybe we were the ones who were agnostic or atheists. Maybe we were the ones who persecuted those trying to share your love with us. Maybe we were the smart Alex. Maybe we were the ones who spat on their face. But we're thankful that you used faithful men, as fallible as they may be, to share the gospel with us. And Lord, and that's how history continues, church history continues, through faithful men and women who share your word. Lord, whether we've been walking with you for days, years, or decades, we pray that you'll give us that boldness to reach the lost. So give us the boldness to say that send revival, start with me. Lord, in our daily readings of your word, that we may understand it and then apply it and then take it to the lost to teach the transgressors your ways. Give us boldness. We know that we cannot do this in our own strength. We need your spirit. You've given us the spirit. We ask that we'll be filled with it as we go out. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.